Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. We're exploring the digital revolution. And if you thought it's been intense over the last year or so, I think it's going to get even more so in the coming year. There is remarkable things continuing to happen across every industry. What's going on here? And the cloud's always fun to talk about. But the really interesting thing is these new capabilities, new innovations, new ways of doing things and experiencing the world that the cloud is enabling. And one of the people that is best at helping to describe this, to take a look into the future and explain why this is important and where it's headed is one of our digital all-stars, Wayne Saden, who's with us every month to talk about Saden on digital. And Wayne has been a CIO, a CTO. He advises CEOs and boards of directors on how to fuse digital into every part of their strategy. Wayne, welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. It's great to have you. As always, it's great to be here, especially right now when the world is changing so fast. It, it, it is, Wayne. You know, sleep with one eye open, I guess, these days, right? There's lots happening all the time. We don't want to miss anything. That's right. In fact, you know, as we talked about before we started, listening to you this morning in your minute gave me an idea for next month's column. So we'll talk a little bit about that before we're done. But I got to keep an eye on you because you're doing so many things so fast in this industry. <laughs> no, I, well, uh, I'm just trying to keep up, Wayne. It, it's simple, but, um, you know, Wayne, you've got such an interesting spot here from which you can see things. You work as an advisor within, you've described it as like, you know, mid-market uh, manufacturing, industrial, logistics types companies. So you see a lot of things going on there. And then also from your experience in the banking world and other places, uh, I just think one of the reasons that uh, you've become such a hit on Cloud Wars Live here is you're not, uh, you see the world through a very broad lens, which is, which is great. So I know today that you had some idea about, uh, you know, what's going on with the economy, supply chains, the implications for all that. So Wayne, talk a little bit about that, where, where you see things, right? Because we're talking about this is just going to continue to accelerate. So we've all got to sort of adjust our mindset, right? Where we are now, how we start to ensure that our businesses don't fall behind in this crazy world that's taking place. That's absolutely right. Um, and you're right. I do see things from a pretty broad perspective. Right now, I'm working in healthcare. I'm working in executive search. Um, I'm an advisory board for a firm doing that via group partners. Um, I've got the manufacturing logistic clients. And as you say, financial services is what I did for many years. Um, but if you're a CEO, if you're a board, if you're a C-suite, you are still figuring out how to work your business in this weird time. Is it open? Is it closed? Is it fast? Is it slow? Should I bring the people back? What government subsidies should I take? But here's my message. If you're not looking forward, if you're still driving in the rearview mirror, you are going to get run over. Uh, Jerome Powell last night on 60 Minutes said, he's obviously the chairman of the Fed, the economy is at an inflection point. And for those that are math people, inflection point is a point at which things change from down to up or up to down. And he means kind of down to up. We are about to accelerate to 6% or 7% or more GDP growth. That'll be the best growth in at least 40 years, maybe more. Um, Powell was predicting unemployment next year will be down four and four to five percent. In some industries, we've already beaten the pre-pandemic numbers. Um, I was looking at an article in, about Dallas, Texas this morning, talking about acceleration of tech salaries and uh, tech hiring. And obviously, we all know that Texas is becoming a mecca for companies. So, if you're a CEO, if you're a board person, 
you better be looking in this direction or be ready to have your company sold. Yeah. Wayne, that, that, that risk that you mentioned there to uh, leaders who fail to look in that direction that you're advising, right? You said they could get run over. And I think the other thing is the, the, the road ahead of them is, is lots of things are shifting. So maybe they're looking in the rearview mirror, trying to see what trucks are you know coming. But the other thing is the road's just not straight ahead. It's twisting, it's turning, and they could just slam into a brick wall. And I, you know, companies, as we've said before, they don't have the luxury of saying, oh, wow, there's lots happening here. I better launch a new three-year initiative to, uh, you know, figure out what to do and then start to do it. And three, four, five years from now, I'll, I'll be caught up. That's, those days are gone. That's absolutely right. You know, I want to tell you, I have a leading indicator for how fast the economy is going to open up. As you may know, I have 30 some odd thousand connections on LinkedIn. So I get a lot of traffic more than most people. Yeah. And my number one trend over the last 30, 45 days is people doing recruiting, whether they're working for a search firm or they're working for a manufacturer, or industrial company, a high tech firm. These people are all getting new jobs. People are hiring recruiters. <laughs> now, when people hire recruiters in this kind of number, what does that say? It says they're getting ready to go on a hiring binge. Yeah. So that's my leading indicator. And I've never seen it move as fast as it's moving now. So if you're a recruiter and you haven't gotten a new job recently, go get one because you probably make more money. But yeah. it's, a, it's a terrific indicator that the confidence is there in the microcosm as well as the macrocosm you know, from Powell and from other estimates. Wayne, I have a technical question for you. Um, who recruits the recruiters? Well, it's interesting. What I saw was it's the big search firms, you know, the big four or five, the Hydrix, the, the, the uh, Russell Reynolds, those firms. But more and more, what I'm seeing is industrial firms. It's the technical firms, the Amazons, Googles, but it's also companies that are doing manufacturing, companies that are doing consulting. So um, in fact, I say I'm an advisory board of a group uh, via group partners that is in the executive search business and they're a relatively young company and they're seeing their uh, business uh, book go like that. So everybody's recruiting for that field because they all realize that the war for talent is going to be one of the themes of the next economy. Uh, I'll just jump ahead and say, if you can work from anywhere, because soon home will be anywhere. It'll be the coffee shop, it'll be a co-working space, it'll be at the beach. Companies are gonna say, do I wanna recruit people to work within 30 miles of my headquarters? Or do I wanna recruit the best people I can get? And that's gonna change the labor market. If you are good, you're gonna be globally good, not just good in your neighborhood. Yeah. And so yeah. companies are recognizing that. I also, I said this in the last column, at the same day that Google announced they were investing billions of dollars in new corporate real estate, Ford Motor Company announced they were going to let people work from home. <laughs> so it's not just new versus old. It's yeah. how do you see the war for talent? And it's important. If you get it wrong, you die because your talent will now be mobile. The talent that you used to have them trapped because you worked in a mill town. You worked in this place that people didn't want to leave because it was a wonderful place to live. Now they can still live in that wonderful place and not work for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, the shackles we've been able to yeah. put on, and now look, I, I recognize we have the K-shaped recovery. There's people that work in mines and mills and grocery stores and coffee shops 
that have to be there to do their job. Um, and the quick future thing is robotics and AI and IoT and all that. Those jobs are going to change a lot over the next five years, but not this year. You're still going to be tied to where you are. But if you're in the mobile workforce, you're going to be more mobile than ever because nobody can say with a straight face, working remotely is a bad idea. They can say it's not the best idea, but they can't say it didn't work because they're still in business a year after they sent everybody home. Yes. Um, so I think the other thing that's important, and look, I've said this time and again, look at the news stories about the supply chain, about logistics, about the chip shortages, about the blockage in the Suez Canal, about now look at the blockage in every US port. The port of Los Angeles had an article about how their costs are going way up. So the notion that we're gonna ship things around the world efficiently, just in time, lean and all of that, those are great ideas in principle, but we have to rethink our risk assumption. There's a thing called stock out cost in the economic order quantity model. It's what's the risk, what's the cost to me if I run out of stuff? And you set it based on your assumption about what happens if you run out. What if I run out of chips and I'm making cars? Well, I'll get them next day, so that's okay. But what if I don't have them for a month and I have to shut down my F-150 assembly line for weeks? We're getting into situations where companies are gonna have to rethink their manufacturing capability. They're gonna have to rethink their supply chain. They're gonna have to rethink the complexity of their logistics model. As I think I might've said in Texas, when we had all the ice and the snow, they ran out of copper pipe in North Texas and plastic pipe in South Texas. And I went to the local hardware store in South Texas and said, why don't you ship this stuff to North Texas? And the answer I got was our logistics system only goes manufacturer to warehouse to store. There's no way I can go store to store or really store to warehouse except for returns. So their logistics system being very efficient at doing one thing, kept them from realizing huge sales volumes and also discommoded millions of people in Texas because we had stuff stuck in the wrong place. And so executives had better realize that this neglected area of their company, supply chain or logistics or warehouse management, transportation management is now very, very, very important to their ability to prosper and even uh, survive. And so when you're talking to the SAPs and the Microsofts and the Oracles of the world, they all have capabilities there. I predict they're gonna be far more important, get far more pull through, and people are gonna be buying far more sophisticated capabilities with AI and risk management modeling, and it's gonna change the world quite a bit. Yeah, Wayne, that is uh, that's beautifully said. And you know, I think, uh... If I could uh, piggyback on that, I think it's one of the reasons why I think this uh, old-fashioned language that you and I have talked about before, front office, back office, is is that's something that I think leaders and companies they've got to crush that, right? You know exactly what you're talking about. They uh, supply chain, oh that that's a back office thing, right? And the shipment and the fact and the warehouses and things like that, inventory control, inventory management. I mean, you're a customer in the healthcare business and you got stuff in, stuck in a canal or a port of Los Angeles. That's a very, very front office uh, problem, I would say. It's, it's the, the office of the customer. So I hope, mm-hmm. you know, the visibility that you've just uh, spotlighted here about the importance of those things really raises that up. And, uh, you know, as companies think about how do I 
set up an org structure? How do I set up a compensation system? How do I set up the communication? All those things that surround it motivate people. In this term of democratization of data for so long, it was built around technological tools, it seemed to be. And now more importantly, the thing is, how do I get every employee feeling like I can make a difference? I can help do that thing that dazzles and delights customers and gets them to give us more money quarter after quarter. Yeah, I, I think that's one thing that's clear is what used to be the function of middle management was to take all the data from the bottom of the, of the pyramid and summarize it and then bring it to the next level, to the next level, to the next level, to the next level. The democratization of data, as you call it, means that what's happening on the loading dock, what's happening on the shop floor is available to the board of directors, to the head of marketing, to the CEO. Many years ago, I worked at an armored car company, and we put in a brand new system, which actually got us on the cover of CIO magazine, that tracked packages in real time. Not a big deal today, but that long ago was a big deal. And the first time the CEO of the company could go meet a truck at the loading dock and say, you have one more bag of money than you're supposed to have on the truck. Somebody made a mistake somewhere in this day's job, changed the culture of the company because people realized that the CEO knew everything happening on every truck in real time. And that's a microcosm of other companies. It's not okay to say my numbers will get buried in my division, in my region. Yeah. The numbers are available in the dashboard if you're running your company right. And to your point, we've got to change that OODA loop, that observe, orient, decide, act, and compress the time because I think you said earlier, we don't have the time for a three-year plan. Now it's a three-month plan based on the three-week infection rate in that local market of coronavirus. Yeah. Wayne, better for that driver, you come back with a, one additional package of money, right? Then, you know, not enough. Actually, losing it in either direction is considered <laughs> bad in that industry. It's one of those industries where you kind of got to get it right because bags of money have a lot of money in them. Very true. Hey, Wayne, uh, I want to take a break here briefly for a word from our sponsor, BMC. BMC wants to know, is your business on its A-game? That's when systems are intelligent by learning from markets, where automation is paramount yet effortless, and when technology and people work as one in an enterprise. The A-game is your business at its absolute best. BMC calls this the autonomous digital enterprise. Find out more at bmc.com slash A-game. So, Professor Satan, you've put together a lot of pretty interesting ideas here. Now, if you are advising as you do boards or CEO, how do you sort of pull this together and lay out a plan for them? The blunt message is get busy or get acquired. And, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with getting acquired if you can get the right price. Mm -hmm. it, just go on to the next thing with your bag of money and go make another investment. But if you want to be on top, recognize that growth is going to be like nothing you've ever seen. If you work in industries that have shut down, you're coming from a base of zero, the cruise ship industry, the hotel industry, the airline industry. Um, in many industries, you're starting from here and it's going to hockey stick insanely high. But even if you're in a traditional industry, if you're providing healthcare, you're going to be doing more telemedicine. So, so get ready to do this growth. Now, what does that mean? Get ready to do growth. The number one thing, as we said earlier, is talent. The thing that helps you grow intelligently, thoughtfully, properly is talent, especially in the democratization of data. 
What are we doing? We're cutting out layers of middle management. We no longer need them to summarize the data. We have people that are frontline, touching processes, touching suppliers, touching customers. And we have people that are making decisions and making the future different. So I'll start by saying it's digital talent. Uh, you know, I have a soapbox. It's about the qualified technology expert. It's about the CIO who can understand the financials like the CFO, market like the CMO, sell like the chief revenue officer, take customer complaints if that's needed, go on the manufacturing floor, talk to the investment bankers, run an M&A project. That is the benchmark for today's CIO. CEOs, board members, accept no less. That's one. And two is this we talked about already, work from anywhere. Companies have to make a decision. Are we fully on-prem? Are we fully remote? Are we hybrid? All of them have consequences. They're all probably acceptable models, but you've got to have a culture that accepts what you're trying to do. If you say people can be remote, but some will be in the office, you can't have a model that says those people that are remote are second-class citizens. You've got to be building a corporate culture that walks the talk of your work from home slash work from anywhere strategy. Uh, that's the kind of the basic element. Now, it's time to talk about strategy. I've been doing a lot of reading on strategy because I think strategy is changing so much. So I'm going to start by recommending two books. Um, one of them is called Post-Corona by Scott Galloway, who probably many of your uh, followers also follow. Um, and he wrote this book uh, in the middle of the corona pandemic. And one of his concepts is the great dispersion. He has many good ones, but I'll focus on that. In financial services, we used to call it disintermediation. People are taking banks out of banking. You know, the famous Bill Gates quote, everybody needs banking, but nobody needs a bank. And Galloway argues that nobody needs the people in the middle. How do you connect the beginning of a supply chain to the end? How do you get rid of the friction in the system? And so I recommend that book if you wanna kind of think ahead into what's gonna happen in the next few years. There's some good stuff he says, and there are some negative consequences. But if you're a CEO or a director, you should be reading that book. And the second book is a book called Strategy Beyond the Hockey Stick. It's written by a number of McKinsey partners. And I think it's terrific. It talks about if you're a company, you have an endowment the stuff, the DNA of your company, um, the industry you're in, and you have trends. What's happening to your industry? Is your industry going up? Is your industry going down? And more importantly, you have moves. There are things you can do as a CEO, as a board member to change the trajectory of your company. And they have a very interesting hypothesis that says most companies are kind of stuck in the middle, a few are at the bottom and a few are at the top. And there's a way to get from the middle to the top that it requires intense focus and intense concentration from the CEO and board on down, but it kind of isn't hard to execute once you've made up your mind to do it. So we could talk about that for hours, but I'll just say, get a strategy and have a strategy that you can execute quickly and get moving. And those two books may help people as they craft strategy. Lane, would it be fair to say too that you're to pick up on your remark from a couple minutes ago about how strategy or the na the nature of strategy is changing today? That as as these leaders you're recommending, you know, think hard about this, be ready, get planned. Don't don't think about it as some ponderous thing like, oh God, you know, we got to go do this big, long, hairy, heavy, ugly thing. It, it shouldn't be easy, 
devising a strategy, but it also doesn't have to be like it was 10 or 20 years ago. This is going to be a giant, heavy duty project like that, right? It, well, it, I think that the need for having faster motion is, is there more than it ever was. But I got to say, I don't think strategy has changed. The notion of strategy hasn't changed a lot. Strategy is a way to decide what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. And so really what I like to think of a strategy is I can refer to my strategy without having to call a meeting to make a decision. If I have a strategy in IT called cloud first and somebody brings me, you were talking about the dump truck full of software to run on-prem and my strategy is cloud first, that's probably not gonna be the first thing I look at. Mm -hmm. If my strategy is hybrid cloud, that says I would look at A or B. So that's to put it in the IT terms. If my strategy is I'm going to divest from a slow moving industry and invest in a faster moving industry, what happens when the slow moving industry executive comes for more money? Boards, CEOs, their main, main choice is capital allocation. So what the uh, strategy beyond the hockey stick and actually post-corona both argue is make up your mind what your winners are going to be and invest in them. Uh, there's a notion in strategy that uh, I was reminded of reading the Beyond the Hockey Stick, the peanut butter strategy. I'm going to smear capital across everything to not annoy anybody. So we smear it like peanut butter. And that's the wrong approach to strategy. Strategy is invest here, disinvest here, milk to the cash cow, as they used to say in business school. So as a CEO, don't say, I'll give everybody a buck give somebody 10 bucks and starve some of the others because you're making a decision of where you want to take the company. I don't think that principle has changed a lot. What's, a, what's changed is we have a lot more data and a lot more ability to push the buttons and turn the levers. And, uh, and certainly the urgency to get, you know, to do it, move quickly, you know, that, that space in between strategy, conception and execution has mm -hmm. to become uh, you know, minimal there. Wayne, you are also have been a very eloquent commentator on the implications of technical debt. How does that play into this scenario that you've, on, uh, that you've laid out? Well, I, in this case, we're talking about what a CEO can do right now. So let me say this. When you're looking at M&A, mergers and acquisitions, and you're looking at who you want to buy, you do due diligence. And I'll maintain that we've underinvested in IT due diligence. We don't say, how bad is the technical debt of this candidate company? How bad is the cybersecurity posture? Um, when Marriott bought Starwood, they bought Starwood's technical debt and discovered that they had an advanced persistent threat and that cost the acquiring company quite a bit of money. So I'll mention an article, a professor that is a friend of mine, Noah Barsky, wrote an article for Forbes um, where he talked about technical debt. And we discussed the notion in this article that doing due diligence and taking a due diligence approach to tech debt may be an actionable way for a CEO or a board to say, go look. How would I look at somebody I'm acquiring and look at their technical capabilities, their cybersecurity, their risk and opportunity profile? I can apply the same thinking to my own company. What if I was going to buy division A or division B of my company and I was going to put together a pro forma? So we can apply that same thinking to the assets I already own and operate that we should be applying to the assets we're acquiring. 
And as we talked about, I hope we're going to put a link to that article. I think it will change people's thinking about how technical debt affects M&A and how to deal with technical debt on a practical basis. Because today I'm really focused on what can you do in the next year or two? You know, we can talk about long-term, we can talk about theory, but I think right now it's the tiger by the tail, as we said last time, yeah. and you don't want to slip off and get eaten by the next tiger. Yeah. So, Wayne, it looks like you had an interesting exchange with, uh, with Barsky about that. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's always fun for me, and I'll say this to your listeners, it's always fun for me as a practitioner. I've been doing this for 30 some odd years and making it up as I go. And when I get to talk to an academic, somebody who's been thinking about it and studying about it for their career, we get some interesting exchanges. I've had interesting exchanges, obviously, with some of your other panelists, um, other columnists. We've had, I've had great conversations with university people, with consultants, and I certainly encourage this sort of thing because we can learn from each other. And so listening to Noah put the theory around it and then me to be able to give a few examples of, yeah, and this happened and so it did this, means we can build a kind of a, a synergy between people who are doing it and people who are thinking about it and, and build a better model. So hopefully you'll put a link in the, uh, yeah. in the piece and people can read it and then hopefully they'll come yell at both of us and we can defend it together. <laughs> Wayne, you know, that uh, it just reminded me in some way here too that you know, the discussion between the practitioner and the academic. Um, I have heard in the last, you know, not long, I'll say four to six months, I'll bet there've been 10 instances when I've been talking to tech companies who've brought up the case, they've come up with a pretty cool new solution. And as you said, things are changing so quickly and the needs of customers are changing so rapidly. Plus the technology with AI and other stuff, it's really an extraordinary time. But these it's got to be 10 companies, maybe 12 over the last handful of months, they've said, when they talk to Gartner, that the companies have said, well, now we have this thing, it can do this, and it can do this, whereas before it could only do one or the other. And Gartner says, no, no, you can't do that. You got to pick, it either does this or it does this. So in some ways, this notion of denying the reality of what's possible, because it doesn't match up with the past. And I think that's exactly, you know, one of the big picture things you're saying here is don't get hung up on the way the world used to be looking in that rear view mirror, right? It's good to know that, but we got to take that past and leverage it forward into help shaping the future because the future is not going to look like what the past has looked like. Yeah. And that's more, more and more important today. It's more different than it was. Uh, absolutely. You've got to be able to say, what do I want to be when I grow up? If my firm was a manufacturing firm, how do I morph into being a data firm? If I, when I was an armored car firm, how did we morph from the business of pick it up, deliver it, and guard it with guns into the business of providing a cash solution to companies? Uh, in the energy business, you could change the model. In construction, uh, McKinsey says that construction has the lowest productivity gain of any industry. So how do we apply technology to that industry where I'm doing a little bit of work to make them better about managing their labor, to make them better about managing their capital, to make them better about managing their act, their purchasing strategy, their logistics strategy. Their, look at healthcare. Hospitals are obviously great at treating people and medical advances are just staggering. But how are they at being a hotel? 
How are they at being a manufacturer of the things they need to put in the operating room? How are they at a, being a credit granting company, um, being a debt collector, being a billing company? All of the things that go into that, they've got to be great at and to say, well, this is our model. We're a monolithic business. We've got to break it up. We've got to take it apart. We've got to put it back together in a different way. You said it earlier, the front office, the back office have to become the office. There's a customer at this end, there's an employee at that end, and there's the stuff in the middle that gets in the way. And, and you know, that, that really leads to the last thing I want to say to uh, board members and CEOs is your governance model needs to change. How do you oversee the, the company that you are leading? Um, I'm reading another book that I haven't finished yet, so we'll talk about it next time. It talks about the uh, compliance model of directorship. Boards are there to, min to minimize risk to companies, risk to shareholders. How do we get boards to be thinking more about the future and less about Sarbanes-Oxley compliance and disclosures and, and the other, you know, certainly there are very valid things, ESG, DEI, absolutely critical. But how do we get a focus on how to moving the company forward into the future and strategy? And, and I talk a lot about this is technology because that's what I do. Um, I recently mentored a group going for a certification exam to become a certified director. And so I took the module on cybersecurity and I took the material from the certifying organization and I did my own research and I made it about twice as long. But this group spent 5% of their time talking about cybersecurity, 5% of the whole test material and 0% of their time talking about IT risks and opportunities in any way, except to say there are IT risks and opportunities like others. And so if you're a board, if you are a CEO, what are you doing to focus your attention on the upside and on the downside of technology? Mm -hmm. How can it help? You know, we talk about digital transformation, the rethinking of your products, your markets, your customer experience, your employee experience, your culture and digital optimization, doing your stuff better and faster and cheaper. But all of that means you need to have some understanding of what technology can do and can't do. Yeah, you, Microsoft bought Nuance this morning, announced it this morning for what, $19 billion? Um, what does that mean to me as a customer? What, what does Microsoft see in that company? Was it their natural language? Was it their industry verticality? Was it their AI? So understanding that as a buyer and understanding that as a potential investor in very small scale of that stuff, what mattered to Microsoft who's pretty smart and how can I use their investment as a guide for what I'm doing? Those are board questions. Those are strategy questions. And I maintain that boards absent what I call the qualified technology expert director are missing the boat on that potential upside. And obviously the big, hairy downside. Yeah, yeah, you're going uh, ill-equipped into a pretty vicious uh, world of competition, change, disruption. And, uh, you know, if you've got any gaps coming into that way, and it's, it's going to be tricky. And I think, you know, your points there about technical debt, the qualified uh, technical advisor there, the expert, uh, very important stuff. Well, Wayne, you know, you, you've pulled a lot of great ideas together here as always. And I think you said you might even have uh, done a little advance work for next time. Do you want to give a little teaser what you might like to chat about? Sure.
Sure. As always, when I get ready to do one of these, I watch your stuff because I watch your stuff, as you know, almost every day and comment on it. And you were talking about industry verticals and industry networks, industry clouds from big players. Now, I want to leave people with a question. If I'm buying software, as we said, by the dump truck, somebody backs the dump truck with SAP or Oracle or M&A, uh, MSA, uh, M&D, you know, years ago, backs up the truck, I install the software myself, customize it with an army of programmers. How does the vendor know how I'm using it? How does the vendor make any sense out of my industry um, other than to hire a bunch of CIOs, put them on an advisory board and say, tell us what you did. And by the way, when I ran the product for a financial services company, that's exactly what I did. I went to my customers and said, what have you got that you built with my stuff that you will sell back to me so I can build it into my system and sell to other people? But the world has changed. We talk a lot about SaaS software and why it's different. And so in this area, it's very different. If you are a SaaS provider with a multi-tenant model, and I am customizing your software, turning the knobs, adjusting things, even making changes at the exits. You have the capability of seeing what I'm doing. Depending on what your contract says, you may have more or less access to the data. You may buy it from me, you may get it from me, we may collaborate on it. But as a vendor, you have a heck of a lot better idea how your customers are using the pieces you're giving them and what's missing, what they have to add what they have to turn on its head. And so I think the model of the vertical solution ties beautifully to the SaaS model and the vendors that are more aggressively moving in SaaS are gonna more aggressively be able to move and to customize the industry. That's one. And the other thing we could talk about, I've been financial services CIO for many years. Groups like Integrion, uh, groups like Transpoint, others, Covicent, we can talk about some of these industry networks that were successful and some that weren't so successful and maybe try to figure out what that might look like in the future. As I said to you, these industry networks go back, what, 300 years? Yeah. When stocks were traded in physical shares under a tree on Wall Street mm -hmm. and in the UK. So how do we take that thinking that's hundreds of years old and apply modern technology to it? And I think that'll be a very interesting conversation next month. Yep. Yep. Wayne, that's wonderful. Uh, good look ahead. And thanks so much for the great ideas for today. It's always a treat talking with you. Same here. And again, like I always say, I welcome the feedback. Uh, I welcome the complaints, the criticisms, the arguments, the whatabouts, because that leads to a lot of better thinking for us as a group and leads to a lot more columns. Perfect. Perfect. Wayne, thank you so much. And to all of you in the audience, thanks for being with us here at Cloud Wars Live. Hope things are going well for you and we'll see you again soon.